Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much for joining us. And to our Disruptor family, thank you for coming back. This is Melissa. This is Tabitha. And we are super, super excited about this episode um, because this is just falling exactly in line with what we love to do, which is disrupt dentistry. So we're going to talk about um, a very interesting topic that we feel affects not only what we do as dental hygienists and how we can be screening our patients and helping our patients, but it also affects us in the profession as well. So um, in honor of Eating Disorder Awareness Week. We are going to be talking about how eating disorders affect our patients and also affect us as dental hygienists. So just a little warning before we start this episode that please be aware some of today's episodes relate to confronting issues. They relate to eating disorder risk factors, suicide, mortality rates, and mental illness susceptibility. And this may be a very sensitive topic for some of our listeners. So please take this on board first. And at the end, we'll also put some links if anyone's requiring any help. And do know that, you know, when we speak of these things, like we we are sharing um, our personal experiences as clinicians and just as people. So we want to be able to put this messaging out there so that you don't feel like you're alone. And, you know, you can say that, you know, if if Tabitha is going through it and Melissa is going through it, it's okay that I'm going through it too. And we can work together on, you know, improving our care and, and making it better for us too. Yeah. So to start with, we're going to talk a little about some statistics and I'll talk about some Australian statistics and then Melissa will talk about some American statistics. So the number of people in Australia with eating disorders at any given time is estimated to be around a million people. So when we think about those numbers to our population number, which is so much lower than America, we're only about a population of 24 million. It's a large percentage of our population that is experiencing an eating disorder and we're very likely to come into contact with someone. Approximately 4% of the population suffers. Eating disorders with combined um, together were estimated at 16.3% for the Australian population. And binge eating and other specified feeding and eating disorders are the most common eating disorders, effectively affecting 6 6 and 5% of the total population, respectively. So lifetime prevalence of eating disorders is approximately 9% of the Australian population. And a recent review found in worldwide lifetime prevalence of eating disorders was 8.3% for women and 2.2% for men. I think that's something we need to remember. I think a lot of the times we think about our female patients and, and we do need to be aware that this affects our male patients as well. And whilst females are more affected than men, we see that, we do have men affected and be compassionate for those men as well. Do you want to give us some USA statistics, Melissa? Sure, sure. So to, it was funny, you were saying Australians total population is 24 million. Well, 28.8 million of the United um, States population is affected by eating disorder. So it is also about 9% to our 331 million total population. More than Um, an eating disorder. When you think about that for the Australian people, that's 
that's all of your, that's your entire country, basically. My, my country, like, whoa. <laughs> like, There's a lot of people. And when you put it, when you say 9%, it seems small. But when you actually say 28.8 million people, you realize how big this is, you know, how many people this affects and how many of those people are sitting in your dental chair on a, you know, daily basis in your schedule. So um, also less than 6% of people with eating disorders are medically diagnosed as quote unquote underweight. Um, 28 to 74% have a risk for eating disorder through a genetic um, heritability, which is pretty interesting. I did not know that statistic. Eating disorders are among the most deadly, deadliest mental illness, second only to opioid overdose. And there are 10,200 deaths each year as a direct result of an eating disorder. That's one death every 52 minutes. So now in a time of COVID, I wonder if this is even higher yeah, and that's, I really didn't know that that was so close behind opioid, like, you know, that we're looking up that at that, those kind of numbers. And when you put that in that one per 15 minutes, it really makes you realise how serious this condition is and how much it's it's gripping our society. I'm going to give you a little bit of certificates, um, statistics as well for thinking about people in our LGBTQ community as well. And in the LGBT community, gay men are seven times more likely to report binge eating and 12 times more likely to report purging than heterosexual men. Mm. And gay and bisexual men are significantly more likely to fast, vomit and take laxatives or diet pills to control their weight. And transgender college students report experiencing disordered eating at approximately four times the rate of their cisgender classmates. And 32% of transgender people report using their eating disorder to modify their body without hormones. So that's something to really be aware of for those patients that are, are going through transition, that there's a lot going on for them. And we really want to be mindful of some of the other things that could be manifesting from that and, and that we could be seeing. 56% um, of transgender people with eating disorders believe their disorder is not related to their physical body. And gender dysphoria and body um, dissatisfaction in transgender people is often cited as the key link to eating disorders. And non-binary people may restrict their eating to appear thin, consistent with the common stereotype of the androgynous people in their popular culture. So whether you're female or male or maybe um, non-binary, there's different ways our culture can really affect us and the what things that we're seeing and um, on social media and on the news. And we just have to be wary that no matter what kind of package we're turning up in, there's still pressure there for a lot of people and a lot of stuff going on. And so not to stereotype it as something for women, it's something for men, it's something for transgender, it's something for, for non-binary. We really need to um, think about those things. Absolutely. And then there's also... Um the cultural uh, connection to it as well as um, some of the statistics say the new, the terminology they're using now is BIPOC for um, people of color. And they're saying significantly uh, less likely than white people to have asked their doctor about an eating disorder for the uh, BIPOC population. And um, eating disorders are half as likely to have received treatment. It says that black people specifically are less likely to be diagnosed with anorexia than white people, but may experience the condition for a longer period of time. Black teenagers are 50% more likely than white teen teenagers to exhibit bulimic behavior, such as binging and purging. 
Hispanic people are significantly more likely to suffer from bulimia nervosa than their non-Hispanic peers. Asian American college students report higher rates of restriction compared to with their white peers and higher rates of purging, muscle building, and cognitive restraint than their white or non-Asian BIPOC peers. And Asian American college students report higher levels of body dissatisfaction and negative attitudes towards obesity than their non-Asian BIPOC peers. So it's really interesting when you break it down that way as well. Yeah. And so it, there's a, I think it's very sad, especially when we start seeing um, statistics for people of color that they're not getting spoken to by their doctors about it and they're less likely to be diagnosed about it. And we all have to be really careful of um, assumptions we make as clinicians and making sure that we are not doing things that are, you know, forms of racism that we don't even realise because we've got this systematic racism in our lives and, and all being aware of how we can make sure that all the time we're really working to be inclusive and treating everyone with equal respect. I think that's some of the things that really rings true there, that as clinicians we're not, you know, it still happens, things go, like think people don't treat people the way they should and we have to really all work to make sure that we do. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, always bringing a, a sense of kindness to your operatory and acceptance and awareness and and be open that, you know, what what makes you happy and comfortable as a person is not always going to be the same for another person that you're treating in the chair. And, and that's a human being who deserves love and kindness and compassion. So just being sure that that we're giving that and we're leaving our, you know, objections or beliefs at the door and just treating that person with the respect, the kindness and the love and compassion they deserve. And I feel that, you know, I think, I think most people do do that in our profession, but there's, you know, some, there are some issues where people just aren't even aware. So bringing that awareness, I think is a very important thing because it's, we're not here to offend. And what we do is already, um, very invasive, you know, just having to lay down and open your mouth is a vulnerable position to be in. And then sharing things on top of that, that, you know, people don't always understand are connected to the work that we do when we're, we're talking about like a really thorough medical history and asking questions about your diet. You know, we can take that avenue of, you know, diet obviously, you know, can affect your teeth. So we're asking those questions. But when we dig a little bit deeper, we can kind of be screening for eating disorders as well. So, um, and there's so much negativity and stigma that goes with that. And it's, it's, I love seeing this, um, another positive impact of COVID, I think, is this awareness of mental health. And this is very, closely tied to that. I think the statistic for the U.S. had also mentioned that 26% of people with eating disorders attempt suicide. Yeah. So it's really important to know that this is tagged with mental health. And from, you know, I've suffered my entire adult and teenage life with an eating disorder. And I know how mentally disruptive it can be. It can be all consuming. So to be able to just bring that to the table in a way where it's non-invasive and we're just doing like our nutritional counseling, but putting in some questioning in there that helps kind of lead you down that road to, to investigate a little bit, because let's face it, we didn't realize when we got 
into uh, dental hygiene school that we are ultimately going to be like the most badass detectives that there are. <laughs> so, um, you know, which is part of that detective work that we have to do with our patients, I feel. Yeah, I think touching on that vulnerability as well, um, looking at eating disorders in statistics with people with disabilities. And I think sometimes we all get caught up in the disability and forget that, pe- that people with disabilities are people as well and have other issues going on and, you know, and they can also suffer from things like eating disorders and other, um, you know, depression and we have to be really mindful of everything that's going on for them and not just being caught up in their disability. And I also want to say, obviously, they have abilities as well, so I'm not saying, you know, I don't want anyone to think I'm saying anything negative there, but we have to be mindful that they too can be susceptible to eating disorders and other things. And so when we look at statistics to that, we see women with physical disabilities are more likely to develop an eating disorder. 20 to 30% of adults with eating disorders also have autism. And 3 to 10% of children and young people with eating disorders have autism. And 20% of women with anorexia have high levels of autistic traits. And there is some evidence that these women benefit from at least from one, um, sorry, benefit from at least one current eating disorder treatment models. And ADHD is the most commonly misdiagnosis in relation to disordered eating as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. And then we don't always think of our athletic population as, you know, they, they seem like they present in our chair to us or people that we know, like they've got their nutrition down, they're exercising, they're taking care of their bodies. But um, the statistics also say that athletes report higher rates of excessive exercise than non-athletes. Athletes are more likely to screen positive for an eating disorder than non-athletes. But percentages across all probable eating disorders diagnoses are similar. Um, Athletes may be less likely to seek treatment for an eating disorder due to stigma, accessibility, and sports-specific barriers. So it really breaks down to just about almost every human that you could be treating in your chair could fall under this umbrella of of the statistics that we've just presented to you. I feel like especially with athletes as well, it's much easier for them to hide an eating disorder because people expect them to be really lean and you know, if they're if they're being um, quite restrictive with their food, people are like, oh, they're an athlete, so it's 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 easier for them to hide something like that, and it's harder to kind of discover that with them as well. And you know, and then they have that pressure of being that expectation of kind of being slim when you're an athlete, and those expectations of exercising really hard. So when they see that, when they're talking about that statistic of over exercising, I was thinking, well, how do you pick that up in an athlete because they're always exercising, like. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And and some people, you know, it's it's funny because in the transition that you may see with people that either, you know, a patient or somebody that you just personally know, that somebody who might have been struggling being overweight and then they, they make these lifestyle changes and they start losing weight, it's like some at some point, I'm kind of, I'm totally speaking from experience here, but you like get from a healthy balance to an unhealthy, obsessive portion where it's no longer sustainable to like live your life and behave in that way and it becomes all consuming so it's it is so directly tied to your mental health and really finding that way to be balanced in it and know that you know what it's it's my birthday it's okay to have a piece of cake today it's not going to ruin my diet and and start that cycle of binging and and then punishing yourself with over exercise 
And um, like I said, I'll be raw, I'll be vulnerable and honest. This is all from my own personal experience. I have dealt with this my majority of my life and um, I've sought comfort in food and it all came down to, you know, just things that I dealt with in my childhood that I struggled and I didn't know how to feel better about. So I turned to food for comfort. And when I was younger, I used to bring food into my room and hide it from my parents. And um, I was really overweight as a child. And then there was the stigma that came with that. My last name, my um, maiden name was Karis and I was called Hubba Bubba Karis at school. And when I walked down the hallways, they would go boom, baba, boom, baba, like the floor was shaking. And, and when I think about it now, like I was, I was a chubby kid, but I wasn't like obese or, you know, and the, but the, the bullying and, and the comments that came with that, just because I didn't fit into the box of, you know, the normal skinny suburban girl in the area that I grew up in. So, um, you know, it just, it, it took a lot to get beyond that. I'm still working on it. I'm 44 years old now and I'm still working on it. So it's just having grace because if you, you know, I'm sure that if you met me at a conference or you met me at some point or you saw me on the internet speaking or doing something, you wouldn't think, oh, she struggles from an eating disorder. Yeah. But I do. And that people don't know what's going on behind our Instagram page or behind our Facebook page or behind um, the smile at the conference for us or for other people so there's a lot going on behind the scenes for people just like there is in your house whoever's listening so just try and be kind absolutely like if if we could all just have some more kindness and compassion and know that you know do unto others as you would have done to you kind of thing but but in the sense of still having an awareness because as Tabitha mentioned earlier there's communities and and people that are going through things differently that might not be your cup of tea, but still deserve to be treated with kindness, love, and compassion. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if you disagree with something, it's still a human being. So just be kind. You know, that's uh, kindness is really the center messaging here. <laughs> and I think you made a really good point before as well about something else that I'd like um, to raise is that. Obviously, when people think of just eating disorders, they think of being quite slim, so maybe like anorexia or they think of bulimia or they think of um, ex- like over-exercise, but we also have problems with binge eating or people that are eating too much as their eating disorder. And so there's a lot of stigma attached with people who are overweight or, and can't control their eating, but we have to realise that that's also an eating disorder a lot of the time. And they need to be treated with the same compassion that we give to people who are restricting their food. And so it's this is bringing awareness that eating disorders, it's it's an umbrella and there's a lot of things that fit inside it. It's not just one thing. It's not just anorexia or it's not just bulimia, or, you know, and we'll see it manifest orally in different ways for our patients as well. And so especially if maybe you're getting a patient who's got a lot of caries. And we're digging in and we're talking about their diet and, you know, they're eating a lot of lollies and they're eating a lot of bad food. Maybe talking to them about maybe they need a dietitian or maybe they also need some help with some psychology because that's a coping mechanism that they've got for something else. And so it's not just about quitting. 
it's easy for us to say, stop eating the lollies. But that's very rarely the reason why they're doing it. Like <laughs> just because they're sweet and they're yummy. There's if they're overeating and overconsuming, there's probably something else going on in a lot of cases. And then we need to make sure that we can have open and discussions with them. You know, how can we refer you to get the proper help so that we can make this modification? What does it mean to you? Or how would it you be able to go about making this change? And just doing it in a really compassionate way because they're people and a lot of the time they're probably feeling ashamed about the situation and they're probably thinking, I don't want this and they don't want to feel judged just by someone else either. Like, So I think that's what Melissa and I try to really push in all of our episodes is it seems easy to say, especially for us with some things with eat less sugar because we're all, a lot of us are quite, you know, aware of it and we're educated and, and we are hyper vigilant on it but it's just not as easy as stopping like we've got to be really compassionate about it absolutely and and you know just helping our patients understand because they're they're seeing us more than they're seeing their physicians and yeah. they we have different types of relationships with our patients and this is what i freaking love about dental hygiene is because we can change people's lives in such a meaningful and positive way and make them smile. You know, we could be part of the reason why they smile because we're helping them just reach the best version of them, you know, and, and if we can bring something up along those lines and help create a new habit loop for them where they're replacing something negative with something positive where, you know, when you get stressed out, maybe every time that person gets stressed, that's when they reach for their, their lolly. And yeah. instead of, you know, Hey, help. <laughs> seriously, I hear you. Yeah. Um, instead of doing that, you, you know, put on a meditation tape and just try to sit and meditate. I'm dating myself by saying tape, I'm not app, but putting on a meditation <laughs> app and just like breathing for a minute, you know, and recentering yourself. There's there's so many ways and it's just trying to find a new, you know, this is this is what happens. Here's my trigger. Here's my reaction. And just trying to break that cycle and create a new a new cycle that's more supportive to your mental health and more supportive to your physical health. And, and going back off of what you said, Tabitha, with obesity, it's an epidemic in America. I don't know about you guys for, yeah. in Australia. Very close to you. We it's, like to- <laughs> it's, it's really bad. And, and a lot of it is, um, you know, the way that our food is processed and, and everything is just so densely packed with high fructose corn syrup and a bajillion different versions of sugar that, you know, we're, we're as dental hygienists, we're fighting this huge battle on a day-to-day basis, just trying to do this nutritional piece with our patients. And again, it comes back to how much time can I, what, how many things can I put into 60 minutes? You know, there's only so many things that I can do. And, and plus in a world of COVID, we have all these extra screenings and things we have to do now too. So it's really tough. Um, but, you know, we don't ever want you guys to feel like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I want you to feel encouraged to find ways to have these conversations and they don't have to be every single appointment that they come in you know you can just like start it like it doesn't have to be done in one day is what I'm trying to say you could start the conversation and and help support that patient as they're seeing you and I think it also links back into something that you and I are really passionate about and one of the themes that we really want to be strong through the podcast is 
multidisciplinary health and working with other health professionals. And that's something that Melissa and I are just so passionate about. And it was the main idea of why we did this is because we wanted to have podcasts on how can we work with other clinicians? How can we make ourselves more part of the medical team? And this is a really good example this week's episode of how you can work with the medical team. So it's working with dietitians, it's referring to psychologists, it's sending them to their physician, their general practitioner, so that you can refer them out and make sure that they're not getting missed. And this is the big problem for a lot of patients with eating disorders is they're not turning up maybe to their physician because they know that someone's going to pick up on it there. But maybe they're going to come for their cleans or they're going to come for pain or, do you know what I mean, or something, you know, because sometimes a lot of our patients who have bulimia have a lot of erosion, so they're coming for sensitivity or something like that. And we're maybe going to be the first person that spots it because orally we're going to see those areas of erosion. We're going to see areas of um, maybe high decay in their mouth. And we're going to be the ones that have to ask those first questions to probe into this to see if maybe they need to get some help. Or I've had to have some tricky conversations with some teenage girls and their family as well where you're looking at the erosion patterns and you're thinking, I know what this is. Like I know, you know, and you're asking reflux questions and you're trying to gently probe and, 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 you know, and maybe have someone pick up on, why I'm asking these questions. Do you want to talk about something? Because we can be that first person that's identifying it. And the earlier it's identified, the better it is for that patient as well. So don't ignore it if you see it in the mouth. Um, And even if all you feel comfortable to do is say, I'd like to speak to your GP about some things that I've seen today, as in I think there's a lot of erosion for your age and I'd like them to investigate that further. Maybe that's all you feel comfortable and experience enough to do, but that's actually huge. You've got them to somebody else who can now handle this. So referring out, working with someone that can then refer them to more people again is really, really important. And no matter what piece you are in that puzzle, the puzzle won't finish without you. So you're really important. So don't think you're insignificant if it's just a, I just made a referral. You were the essential piece to get to that referral. So don't underestimate how important your piece of the puzzle is. It's so important. It's so important. And that's the other part of this. Like when we speak about holistic dentistry in the sense of the wholeness of the person, it's not about you having to have all of that knowledge and and take them from part A to part B to part C. It's like exactly what Tabitha said. You're just making that initial connection. And don't look at that as a small piece because you could be the starting point for somebody to make so many positive changes in their lives. And it is, it's just finding, and it's, it is, it's, it's also really uncomfortable for us because you're like, am I going to offend them? Am I going to make them upset? How do I, how do I bring this up? How do I gently ease into this conversation? But Tabitha made some great points, like just going from it. If you see that lingual uh, maxillary anterior erosion and you're suspecting, you know, bulimia and just saying, Hey, do you have these stomach issues? I didn't notice that on your, your medical history. Um, Are you, you know, are you taking anything for acid reflux? Do you have it? I see somewhere that like there's acidic exposure on, on your teeth. I'm concerned about that. This is why. And just, you know, easy ways to step into that conversation instead of just saying, are you bulimic? Are you throwing up? Because it looks like, it looks like you are, you know, and it's just, again, knowing how to present things in a way to create an operatory of comfort and compassion and kindness. And that's not always, that's, 
not always something that we're really trained to do right from the start. You know, we're kind of, we're, we're so clinical oriented. We're so like, you see this, it means this, you see that, it means that you see this, you have to do this instead of like really teaching that, that, that inter motivational interviewing kind of piece where you're able to speak to people and create an environment where it's safe and it's okay. And I'm here to help you. You yeah. know, and I know you're struggling with this and, and here, how can I help you? How can I help you get the help that you need? Cause that's, man, I'll put my scalers down five days a week for that conversation. Yeah. And I think, um, the reason, one of the reasons why we did give this trigger warning at the beginning as well is because it is a really serious condition for some people and it can be fatal. And that's unfo- the unfortunate, one of the unfortunate things from this as well as besides the mental anguish that is going through the minds of people suffering from this, this can also be a fatal condition for a lot of people. And we look at some statistics for this. We know that eating disorders along with substance use disorders have the highest mortality rate of all psychiatric disorders. And the mortality rate for anorexia nervosa is higher than any other eating disorder. And cardiovascular complications is the leading cause of death among people with anorexia, followed by suicide. So there's medical complications causing issues here as well. So we really need to get this patient into the care of their physician and general practitioner. Um, We also can look at the rate of mortality for individuals with bulimia and binge eating disorders is lower than those with anorexia, but still significantly higher than the general population. People with anorexia are more than 31 times more likely to attempt suicide than those with bulimia and 7.5 times more likely to attempt suicide than the general population. So it's a much higher rate that we're seeing depression and suicide rates. So it is so important that when we do identify these patients, we get them into a multidisciplinary care. People with anorexia are 18 times more likely to die of suicide than those with 18 than those with bulimia and are seven times more likely to die of suicide uh, relative to gender and age match comparison groups. And suicidal behavior is elevated in binge eating disorders relative to the general population. So it's it's very, very serious. And so we do really need to make sure we become part of that multidisciplinary team. And this is why um, Melissa and I always like to say as well, Melissa coined this on Facebook, and I think this is really important. I just, you know, jump around with her and say, yeah, I agree. But we're healthcare hygienists. That's what we are. We are healthcare hygienists. And there's many things that we probably didn't know we were buying into when we graduated, but we're here. And... And I think that that's why this, you know, it, it's been a hard year and a lot of people thinking we're not essential, but we're a central part of the medical team and we play an essential role for all of our patients. And today's episode was highlighting, again, how essential we can sometimes play in this role and the need for our compassion for these patients as well. Definitely. And when we talk about um, patients that struggle with obesity, it's, it's even more connected to what we do because the um, women with, um, and I'm not, I'm quoting off of memory, so please forgive me if I'm a little bit off, um, but this is what I learned in the book uh, by Drs. Bale and Donine, Beat the Heart Attack Gene. But women who have a waist circumference that's greater than 35 inches and a male that has one that's greater than, I believe, 40 inches, um, it, they're at a higher risk for heart attack and heart disease and, and stroke and cardiovascular disease. So that's something that we could be assessing walking our patients to the room. 
Yeah. You know, we don't have to take a measurement tool around their waist and, and oh, yeah, you're bigger than 35 because that would be really demeaning. But we can take a look at our patients just as they're walking. And, and that's, you know, that's part of that. And when patients are obese, what's going on inside of their body is um, they could be leading down the road for insulin resistance, which turns their the, the inflammation on in their body. And we know what chronic inflammation with periodontal disease means. And now they have that going on because they're also obese. So that's a double whammy. So there's ways, there's so many ways that this is all connected. It's just bringing it together and, and becoming that healthcare hygienist and, and making those referrals. And sometimes it's tough to have these conversations with patients, but there's just ways that you can find it to connect and when we talk about inflammation in the mouth and saying and there's inflammation in your body the the statistics in the body of knowledge that we're learning of how damaging obesity is to our overall health is tremendous so if we're able to to intercept that and counsel patients on that and help bring them to the people that can help them in those avenues that's saving lives people that's what lights my heart and hair on fire. Like I want to do that every day, all day, because that is, that's, oh, that is the care that we get to provide. And we can't do everything. We do only have a 60 minute appointment. So for our patient to get really good optimal care, we've got to share that love around. Like we've got to be working with multiple people as a team. And it's something Melissa and I feel really passionate about. We'd love to see us in Officers in medical offices doing oral health care assessments um, as hygienists and really expanding our roles of working with, you know, if you're at an endocrinologist, having people screened orally, making sure they're working more closely with us, or cardiovascular specialists working more closely with us, and us referring people more often and getting that checked. You know, if I've got a patient in the chair and they have a cardiologist, I write them a letter after I see that patient every time. Mm-hmm cardiologist a letter let them know what I saw because if there's a lot of inflammation that cardiologist needs to know that so I I'm always making sure that I know that and so it's just working with your medical doctors and then when we're going back to seeing something for eating disorders working with that doctor if they've if they've already got someone written down I just say to them do you mind if I cc this um medical doctor in I think they need to know what's going on here as well with this letter you know with what I saw today because that's something else that you might see in some of our patients that are really restricting themselves with food inflammation of their gingiva because we're going to have vitamin deficiencies sometimes when it's when it's gone along for a long time they're going to be more susceptible to gingivitis more susceptible to periodontal disease or maybe um, something that I have seen in some patients as well who are restricting Whilst they're not eating much, I had a patient that, that was just really keeping themselves going on lemonade. Oh, wow. Eating like no food, but lemonade was the way she was keeping herself going because it was just giving her any, enough energy from the sugar to keep her going. But she was really, it was food that was really hurting. So the caries rate in her mouth was horrific because she was drinking two litres of lemonade a day and no food. So, you know, we're going to see it manifest all in different ways, but it's about having those conversations exactly like Melissa said. What what are you consuming? What are you doing? And, and figuring things out so that, you know, all right, well, I need to make a referral here. And, you know, and I sent that patient off to the general practitioner. 
and then that general practitioner dealt with the the extra referrals that are needed. Um, But we have this amazing opportunity to be able to really um, make sure we identify where we can and, and, you know, and try not to miss these things so they don't slip through the cracks and maybe don't get identified at all. And that's Absolutely. And I think it's up to us. I think we have to take the reins on this because, we, you know, we're, we're talking about how, I know in America, we talk a lot about how we would like to be more independent as clinicians. But you know what? This is a way that we could do that right now where we can start making sure that we take the time to send these letters to our patients, um, medical practitioners, to just let them know what's going on. Just like, you know, periodontal hygienists will send those those letters to the GP. Why can't we be doing that on a regular basis to our patients' physicians? Yep. I think that should be standard of care. It should be practiced. And those are conversations that you could sit down and have with your your um, office manager and your dentist and say, hey, listen, I want to take this holistic approach to patient care. It's a person. These are people we're treating. And there's other body systems that oral health are affecting and, and screenings that we do that we can see the connection and, and really take the lead on that in your practice. And, um, you know, find me on Instagram or Facebook, Tabitha too. I just invited her to do this, but I know she would agree. We'll help you. Yeah. We will help you do that. We will help you. It it takes a few minutes to write a standard letter that you can then just alter and individualize for each patient and have it on file in your word document and boom, it's there and you can get it done. And, or you can even just like standardize it and give it to your um, admin team and copy paste out of your chart notes and, and throw some more information specific to that individual patient in there. And it, you could just have to create a system. And um, that's how we're going to get the awareness in the medical community of how profound the care we provide is. And when you think about too, just how your patients will respect you for when you're writing a letter to their general practitioner and you're including them and looking at the whole bottle and you're taking the time to really do all this, you, you create a really great patient base as well that really respects you and then elevates our career to another level as well. Absolutely. So I just want to take a last few minutes to focus on the dental hygienist and our role in the office and how if a, a hygienist is struggling with an eating disorder, how our day-to-day lives can also impact that as well. Because um, many of us will share that we, you know, we're hustling all day long. And sometimes we work through our lunch breaks and sometimes we work over at the end of the day when we should have already been on our way home and and having dinner with our families. And we just, we, we don't have time to drink and hydrate. We don't have time to use the restroom. We don't have time to eat. And, um, it's not, it's not good and it's not okay because I know that I've run around ragged and ran into, you know, the break room and patient brought cookies in and I'm like, I'm so hungry. I'm going to just eat these cookies just to get that little bit of, you know, sugar jolt so I can keep on going. And, and none of that is okay. You know, it's okay to have a day where the schedule kind of falls apart and, and you have to hustle a little bit that day, but please, I, I beg of you to make sure that if you are working, you know, an eight, nine hour shift that you have a lunch booked you have a break to eat a well-balanced meal 
and be able to breathe and use the restroom and hydrate yourself. And, um, you know, that's an important thing for you as a human being. And I want you to be able to take the time to do that because you deserve it. And, um, you know, make sure that we are sitting down and, and creating enough space in our morning before heading off to work that we have a balanced meal and we have enough protein, carbs, and fats that are going to carry us through to lunchtime and we're not running behind the eight ball and, and starving, you know, by the time we're an hour into our clinical day, your brain will function better, your body will feel better, and you will feel better about you. So um, I'd be more than happy to, to share what I've learned along the way. Um, that's helped me, <clears throat> excuse me, get through my, I'm not through it by any means. So I <laughs> watch the words I'm choosing, but just that's helping me manage my relationship with food. So I'd be more than happy to help happy to help out with uh, anybody who has similar struggles as I've been sharing with you today. So you can always reach out to me on Instagram, send me a DM, and I'd be more than happy to share what has helped me. It doesn't mean it's going to help you, but sometimes that community building is just super helpful in itself. So so there's lots of good resources online as well. So Butterfly um organization.org is a really good organization that helps people with eating disorders i got a lot of the statistics today from the victorian eating disorder association um, there's associations for the usa and australia obviously um, referring our patients and working with our general practitioners building good relationships with your general practitioners in your local area as well you know talking to them even um talking to some of your general practitioners about is this something they're competent with if you refer cases like this to them? So you can have that relationship built up with someone that maybe is, if, you're to, if your patient doesn't have a physician to see, you know one that would quite be quite competent to send them to as well. So there's a lot of different resources out there. And what we'll do today is um, when this episode goes live, we'll put some links in the show notes so that if you feel that you personally need some help or if you'd like to read some more on it, you can. I'd really like to thank Melissa for being so open with us today and being really vulnerable with our listeners and just expressing that we're all human and, you know, as marvellous as our lives may look on Instagram, there's stuff going on behind the scenes for all of us and just be aware of that, be open to that and just try and be non-judgmental for people who are suffering through this at the moment. It's really hard. We've seen how much it affects their mental health through some of these statistics and we just need to be respectful and compassionate in the way that we treat them and hopefully we can save a life absolutely that's that's really my end game goal is to help save saving teeth but saving lives and 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 helping people realize that you know whatever struggle they're in it doesn't have to be permanent there's ways to get out of it um, just to kind of piggyback what Tabitha had said, here in the U.S., there is a National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders, um, and they have a helpline. Uh, I just lost the helpline. <laughs> I just had it, and now it's gone. Um, they have a helpline that you can call. It's an 800 number. It's one 888 375-7767 and they have a wonderful resource online. It's anad.org. So if you needed to look anything else up or educate yourself or seek help, there is plenty of resources right on that website. So thank you everyone for listening today for our episode for Eating Disorder Awareness Week and um, 
we hope that you're all staying well and healthy and we hope you tune in again. So give us a like and um, on our Facebook page or Instagram page and download our episode and share it around. And thank you very much for always joining in and listening with us. Thank you, disruptors. Keep on disrupting.